0: Heterodorks, heterodox dorks.
1: Oh, I was just to say I was on a text thread earlier today with some people working on some of the um, gender ideology issues. And you know, back in 2017, and then again in 2019, when I was at the Heritage Foundation, you know, we had hosted some events featuring people who disagree with me on more or less everything except gender ideology. And, you know, the agreement was, we're just going to have to agree to not talk about the stuff that we disagree about. And to my mind, like, I think it's important to make, you know, those sorts of alliances where you can, like, you know, you don't have to agree about everything to agree about something. So anyways, that's why I was asking about the abortion book, like mention it or not mention it really up to you guys. It's, it's your podcast.
0: Well, you're our guest,
1: (laughs) but I don't want to make life, you know, hard for you guys unnecessarily.
0: Like <laughs> that is so hilarious. Yes. Our lives are so easy. We've never been scapegoated by anyone. We're just Fair pillars <laughs> of our communities.
2: Well, hey turfs and trannies. Welcome to HeteroDorks. I am Corinna Cohn.
0: And I am Nina Paley. And our special guest tonight or today or whenever you're listening is Ryan Anderson. Who I first saw at the Heritage Foundation in D.C., where he was hosting a panel of some uh, gender critical feminists and lesbians.
1: I didn't know you were there for that event.
0: I was indeed. I was, oh, wow. you know, hooting Did we meet? and hollering. No, I don't think we met. I was really okay. glad that I attended, even though I was warned off.
1: And was that the um, 2017 event or the 2019 event? Do you remember? That was
0: 2019. 2019. Was 2019.
1: So that 2019. was the um, Voices from the Left Concerns with the Equality Act? The ine- I yes. think it was titled The Inequality of the Equality Act, Voices from the Left. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was Voices from the Left, and Julia Beck's oh, portion was, was especially memorable. Yeah. Yeah. So when she people talk to me about conservatives thinking this and that and the other thing, I just think about this time Julia Beck spoke to a room full of conservatives and there wasn't a dry eye in the house.
1: No, it was, it was incredible. I mean, all all four of those speakers were incredibly moving. Yeah. And, and, and I, when we were talking about this before, I guess we officially started, but like, that was a privilege for me to, to host an event like that. There were, I think mutually there were concerns on both sides and we had had a certain amount of trust that there would be respect and confidentiality and, I was really happy with that. And Kara Dansky has just really gone on to just be a, a huge leader in this space. Was she at the 19 or the 17? I'm trying to remember. I think she was at the, the 2019 event, right?
0: Yes, she was on that yeah. panel as well. And she has taken a lot of shit for this. And actually, it's caused a lot of fighting in the gender critical world or the feminist world. Right. That, you know, how dare some of these feminists speak at the Heritage Foundation?
1: Well, I remember, I can't remember if it was the 19 event or the 2017 event, but one of the speakers, I think, you know, it was the 2017 event. It was, um, it'll come to me in in a second, but she said, you know, she opened her comments by saying, you know, I can't believe I'm about to say this, um, but thank you to the Heritage Foundation for providing me with something that no organization on the left would provide, a platform. Um, Wasn't that Miriam and, you know, Ben Shalom? Yes. Yeah, it was Miriam. Yeah, that's exactly. And, and you know, it was the type of thing where, like, I don't think we were their first choice of people to partner with uh, so much as, you know, no one else was willing to partner with them at the time. I mean, I think, you know, since then, we've actually discovered that there's actually more common ground than, you know, we might have imagined five years ago. But at the time, it was a pretty lonely spot, especially that 2017 event. It was, it was a group called Hands Across the Isle. That was intentionally um, kind of like, some of them were conservative Christians, some of them were radical feminists, atheists, lesbians, et cetera, et cetera. And they were like, all right, we can reach across the aisle on this issue. And and that was the event where Miriam Ben Shalom spoke. I had less personally and professionally to lose on these issues, given prior professional work I had done, than I think um, some of the, the, the Wolf board members and others who spoke out from the left. I mean, I think people on the left who spoke out against uh, some of the gender ideology had much more on the line and many of them paid quite dearly for it. And I think Kara is a good example of that. And so I think they were particularly courageous and willing to partner with with us at Heritage at the time. I'm no longer at Heritage, but still say us. And and since that Kara's published a good book on these issues, she's been very outspoken. She's been willing to go on Tucker's show even though I'm sure that doesn't win her many friends, but it's because no one at CNN or MSNBC will invite, invite her on, right? It's not so much that she's choosing Tucker so much as Tucker's the only one that's willing to have her. Uh, and I, I don't think that's a condemnation of Tucker, it's a condemnation of, of everyone else.
2: Somebody recently criticized me for giving some of my time to uh, people who are on the right. And they said, you're just you're just fraternizing with the enemy. And my response is, I'll talk to anybody. Anybody can use my story. Anybody can talk about my story. And it's just a matter of it being that nobody on the left and very few people near the center want to have anything to do with my story. But I, I'm open to anybody who wants to have a conversation. I like dialogue. I like to hash these things hmm. out.
1: And I wish more people were like that.
2: In your mind. I know you're on the right, so this might be a biased answer, but what do you who do you think is more open to... Having uh, giving a hearing to somebody else's opinions, people on the left or people on the right?
1: I'm not only biased because I'm on the right, but biased because of my life experience. So, so I spent 12 years at a Quaker school in Baltimore, and then college was at Princeton. And so more or less all of my friends growing up were politically on the left, um, theologically on the left, every different variety of the left. Most of my friends growing up, K through 12, and then college, K through 12 was not nearly as bad as the past decade. Like, I think it's gotten much worse. I had great friends in high school who knew, you know, I was politically conservative, religiously conservative on a variety of things. And they're like, yeah, but we're still friends. We're teammates. We're bandmates, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And a couple of years ago, uh, I was canceled by my high school alma mater. And we don't talk anymore. And it's kind of sad. But I don't know enough to say globally, is there more intolerance on the right or on the left? What, what I've experienced has been much more intolerance on the left. And I think it's also different if you're talking about at the elite levels of society or at, you know, more kind of like grassroots, blue collar working class levels. But at least at the elite levels, there's much more of a presumption that if you're college educated, if you have an advanced degree, if you work in certain professions media, news, academia, politics, that will everyone who's educated thinks X. And if you don't think X, it can only be because you're a bad person, right? And so it's, and you know, and those are the circles that I live in. I have an undergraduate degree, a, a PhD, I work in the intersection of academia, media and politics. And so it's much more of a, if you don't agree with us, it, it can only be at this point that you're evil because we know you're well-educated. Like you have all these fancy degrees, you work in places uh, that require you to be smart. We've heard you speak and you clearly aren't a Neanderthal. So it must be that you're morally backwards.
0: So how did you, how did you end up in these (laughs) situations? I grew up in a college town. My parents are were liberal Democrats. My family's all liberal Democrat. Uh, Everyone around me is liberal Democrat. And conservatives were, you know, they were around, but they were the outlier and we, we othered them. <laughs> so when I started being canceled and denounced by my tribe, basically, mm. I felt like a scapegoat, somebody from inside the tribe who has then been ejected from the tribe. But how did you end up around all of those liberals? When your family, I assume your family was conservative? Yeah,
1: Yeah. I mean, so it's an interesting question because I come from like a standard kind of Catholic family, but they didn't send any of us to Catholic schools. We all went to the Quaker school that was right next door to the Catholic church that we went to. So Sunday mornings, you know, we all went to mass at the Catholic church, Monday through Friday, the very next building down on the street was the Quaker school. And, you know, it was Quakerism, its origins are kind of as a, Non-doctrinal form of Protestant Christianity that you know over time different varieties of Quakers are more or less Christian. With some Quakers not even speaking about the Bible or the Trinity or Jesus. You know the terms being the inner light. There's that of God of in all of us. Quaker meeting for worship. Some of them have preachers, but the majority don't. It's very much like you sit in silence. And then if the spirit moves you, you might stand up and share what is on your heart. And, you know, all four of my brothers and I went there uh, first grade through 12th grade. And, you know, most people at the school were more liberal progressive on the left than not. And then I went to college at Princeton and more people there Or on the left, then not. And it's not so much that, like, you know, I sought this out or my parents sought it out, but I grew up in Baltimore City. The the public schools were not all that great. My parents sent us to a private school, a Quaker school, which was, you know, affordable for them. The deal was they said that we'll pay for for first through 12th grade, but in college, you're on your own. And so they didn't pay Hmm. a dime for any of our college tuitions. But the trade off was that we all got a very solid first through 12th grade education, which was a great, in hindsight, a great blessing in life. And I think it's been particularly helpful for me given like what now my professional vocation is, which I spend a lot of time talking to audiences that don't agree with me. And I'm kind of like, well, this just reminds me of one, what like dinner was like at home because I have very opinionated family members, but also this is what high school and college was like. People who disagree with me, but you need to learn how to talk to people. Uh, and how to disagree without being disagreeable. Like, I think that's a lost skill that we used to have. Uh, and so in hindsight, I can say all of those formative experiences really prepared me well for trying to form partnerships, alliances, working together with people who might agree on some issues, but not all issues. And then talking to audiences who not are not inclined necessarily to agree with me. I do a lot of campus speaking, colleges, law schools, uh, things like that.
0: What is a conservative?
1: <laughs> I mean, so that's actually the topic of a lot of debate over the past five years. I mean, I, I mean, this is, I mean, you ask two conservatives, you might get three opinions, right? It's, it's, I mean, historically, it would, it would have been something like people who want to both conserve aspects of law and culture um, that promote human flourishing, human dignity, common good. But then also people who want to minimize the role of government in their lives, right? And so that's the, that latter part's the more libertarian strain of conservatism. The former part would be the more kind of traditional conservative uh, part of conservatism. And there's been an uneasy uh, tension throughout the 50 years of like the formal conservative movement. Goldwater was more on the libertarian side. Reagan was more of a fusionist. W. Bush might have been more of a traditionalist Um Trump was clearly less of a libertarian. I don't know if traditionalist is the right word for him or not. The phrase that Matthew Walther coined was barstool conservative, uh, people who are heavily uh, invested in cultural issues, but not necessarily so much the traditional social issues, if the social issues were kind of like abortion, gay marriage, religious liberty, cultural issues, CRT, blue collar jobs, and then some of the um, uh, identity politics issues.
0: Can you define liberal?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, so yes. Uh, so, I mean, historically, it was people who cared a lot about liberty, right? I mean, so this, the etymology of the term was that, um, I mean, going all the way back to, you know, thinkers like John Locke, it was, it was a school of political thought that placed an emphasis on protecting individual liberty. And so liber- liberals were about protecting individual liberty. And the fear was that we have overweening political power and we need to limit political power. And so if you think, you know, in this sense, um, you know, the American government is in a certain sense, a liberal government because it has certain limited and enumerated powers at the federal level. And then I would say today's liberals have gone beyond that and would say that, well, it's not just that we need liberty from the government, but we need to make that liberty effective. And so you can think of like uh, FDR's freedom from, you know, what was the speech? The four freedoms, freedom from want, freedom from fear, freedom from... I'm forgetting the exact formulation, but the idea here was that you you would actually need this. Yeah,
2: the fourth one. What was the fourth? I, I think the fourth one, Ryan. The fourth one was freedom from opinions that I don't want to see on Twitter. <laughs> well, that's the new one. That's the rise of, I mean, and so I mean, that's really helpful
1: because FDR, LBJ, you know, New Deal, Great Society, liberals were we're going to need a welfare state to make people's liberty effective. That if you don't have certain material resources. Saying that you have legal freedom that you can't actually do anything about isn't helpful. And then the new version of freedom would be you need to be free from viewpoints, opinions, and people that you disagree with, right? And that and that would be where you see the various kind of debates about forcing other people to do things that you agree with, whether it's Baker, florist, photographers, or teachers using preferred pronouns, or hospitals doing certain medical procedures, or bookstores not selling certain books, It's our Twitter banning certain accounts, et cetera, et cetera. The idea being that my liberty requires someone to censor you, to limit your speech or your action, et cetera, et cetera. So those might be three waves of modern liberalism. There's a famous essay by Leo Strauss titled Three Waves of Modernity, which he gives a different genealogy for now we'll we'll sit with that
0: i have said that i am conservative of liberal values from 25 years ago
1: that's like that elon musk graphic have you guys talked about this that he shared i don't know
0: yeah that that graphic was drawn by one of our guests who drew it i don't even know
1: the origins Who, who who drew that graphic
2: that was colin wright oh really that was oh wow okay
1: i'm a big fan of his work yeah
0: yeah, so it's it's kind of weird that I maybe this is just human nature. supposedly everybody gets conservative as they get old, but there were you know ideas about liberty that were really important to me, that I was raised with, like freedom of speech and censorship is really bad and banning books is bad. We don't do that. <laughs> and I adhere to those ideas still.
1: So, you're like the old school ACLU.
0: Yes, I used to love the ACLU. I can't believe what happened. My father and my mother, too, they're huge supporters of the ACLU. Mm-hmm. When my father died, he had a, a fund set up at the ACLU. Like, you know, don't, no flowers, just contribute to this ACLU thing. And now it's just oh, an wow, absolute yeah. disgrace. And Illinois, especially, that's where I live when i was being canceled and my films were being banned in illinois illinois aclu my parents friends they weren't they weren't helping me they weren't standing up for my banned films they were busy getting male prisoners into women's prisons and me talking about that is why i got canceled and my films banned in the first place
1: i didn't know that history wow yeah it's really there are a number of kind of like gender critical feminists for whom you know they have similar stories to that that everything was fine until they started speaking out in favor of biology-based, sex-based rights for women. women.
0: Um, yeah, we're, we're politically homeless. Yeah. And, you know, the last episode I said that I really wanted to find a cult that would love bomb me. I wouldn't mind finding... Mm-hmm political party to, to love bomb me too. (laughs) I've been so brutalized by my own former tribe. It's like, I just want someone to be nice to me.
2: Any libertarians listening, you should try to get to Nina first before the conservatives get her.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: and so what, what has your experience been when I was mentioning the 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 spectrum of conservatives, you raised your hand and I I realize our, you know, our audience is just getting audio, so they won't know. But I mean, what has your experience been with where libertarians fall on some of these issues.
2: Well, my libertarianism goes back to when I started my own small retail shop and I realized that government is actually Mm -hmm. my enemy instead of my friend. That radicalized me into uh, ideas like you shouldn't tax people to the point where they can't make a living anymore. (laughs) Right. So uh, about 10 years ago for myself, I started seeing that what had previously just been the trans community had galvanized around these extremely, I don't even know the right word, uh, anti-liberal concepts of controlling speech, um, economically depriving people who had ideas that didn't go along with gender ideology, being uh, violent towards women who wanted to talk about some of these issues. And I am a, a very strong First Amendment believer. And I spoke out to my community and I said, look, we would want reciprocity if we want to meet and have talk about the sorts of ideas that concern the civil rights of trans people. Uh, we should also support women who are meeting to talk about the i uh, their ideas for supporting women's civil rights. And it's not right that we should go and uh, intimidate women and pound on the windows while they're meeting or try to get them displaced from their their meeting places just because we don't like the ideas if we don't like the ideas we should listen to them and then come up with better arguments and let me tell you that that went over very poorly (laughs) and it's it's just shocking to me because there's there's nothing particularly like i'm i'm not an i identity ideologue I think that it's important for everybody to have an identity. I have one as being trans. uh, Nina has one as being a feminist. You have one being conservative. These are aspects, identity aspects. But these are not things that we should be going to war over against other people. And I'm sorry, I'm ranting a little bit. But I, I feel very passionately that if we want to be respected in society and if we want to benefit from a pluralistic society that makes allowances and tolerates our existence in it, that we have to also internalize that value and show the same tolerance for other people who we disagree with. Everything you just
1: said strikes me a lot like um, things that Andrew Sullivan has said on some of the LGB issues. Because he's been outspoken saying, why are you guys harassing the baker, the florist, the photographer? You know, I thought this was supposed to be a two-way street. I wanted freedom to marry, but he should have the freedom not to bake my wedding cake. And it strikes me that like your position and Sullivan's position are unfortunately minority positions within kind of like left-leaning politics, but also like LGBT movement politics writ large. And, you know, there are other people speaking out. There's like the LGB alliance, things like this, but they don't control the institutions. Is is that a fair way of putting it that like the kind of like professional LGBT activist groups, the professional um, feminist groups all seem to have like bought into intersectionality. I can't think of a mainstream women's organization speaking out against putting men in women's prisons, right? Wolf does it, but you know, where's now?
2: If you want to rise to any level of leadership in any of the left-wing organizations now, you have to have, there's, a, there's only one set of politics, which is allowable. There's no room for disagreement. And it's not just on the issue that is related to that organization's mission. It is the entire political viewpoint uh, across the board that you have to adopt.
0: Hmm. It's intersectionality. Yeah. So the first time I saw the acronym SOGI was actually at that Heritage Foundation panel. Um, So SOGI is Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity. And I don't think that should be a thing, right? Sexual orientation Mm -hmm. and gender identity, they're separate things. And a journalist asked me, I think it was Brandon Showalter, he asked a bunch of us like, well, what could we conservatives do to help? what you gender-critical feminists are doing. And I said, well, can we separate the so from the gi? If conservatives are mushing them together, that just sort of reinforces the forced teaming that started with the LGB and the T a while back.
1: Yeah. There's a movement specifically on that in the UK. Um, I'm blanking on his name, but a subsequent event that I had hosted maybe in well. pandemics maybe it was later in 2019 or must have been really early in 2020 before the pandemic a gentleman had come over from london to speak and specifically on like surrogacy issues uh and he was speaking as a gay man saying that um uh you know he was concerned with some of the uh, surrogacy issues but then also he was concerned with some of the the gi part and he then is part of a group called the lgb alliance are you familiar
0: with this yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Know about that. No, I mean, I, I know that it's it's happening. I just, I'm just i just thinking like in terms of conservatives supporting that kind of separation on the conservative side, could the could the conservatives separate the so from the ye? I
1: mean, so I don't think we have the power to do that um, in the sense that, you know, at the end of the day, the human rights campaign, other groups like that are the ones driving the Equality Act. And then I would say that the concern with the SO part, you know, let's say you're making a um, non-discrimination ordinance with the SO, is that it's those are the laws, the you know, non-discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, that have been used to go after the Catholic adoption agencies and the evangelical baker, florist, photographer. I see very little kind of public discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. That's not to deny. I'm sure there's lots of kind of private, behind closed doors, implicit discrimination. But most of the most prominent major institutions of American life, they're flying the rainbow flag. And so to my mind, if, like, if anti-discrimination law is meant to shield a vulnerable minority from kind of overt discrimination, you know, which group is more powerful in this cultural debate? Is it the LGB community? Or is it, you know, the evangelical florist, baker, photographer? Because you know, as far as we can tell, there was one baker, no, two bakers, one in Colorado, one in Washington State, one florist, uh, one photographer. T- you know, it's not as if there's Hilton or Marriott or you know, large, powerful corporations saying, "If you're gay, we won't rent you a hotel room or we won't um, serve you a meal." Um,
2: so I mean, that that would be my concern. To be fair, that's today. Oh, go, go ahead. Because right. we, we had to uh, become a more progressive society to get to the point where people who are assumed or believed or openly uh, gay or lesbian could access these sorts of accommodations without receiving overt discrimination. So it, go back 30 or 40 years, it would be uh, unsurprising that if you went into a Hilton that the hotel manager might reject you from staying.
1: No, and that's a fair point. And, and so, I mean, we, when when I was doing work on the marriage debate, you know, I'd co-authored a book with a classmate of mine from Princeton and a professor of ours titled, What is Marriage? And then the subtitle kind of gave away our, our answer, Man and Woman, a Defense. <laughs> we tried to simultaneously say that we are against unjust discrimination against people who identify as gay or lesbian, but we also don't think the proper, from our perspective, definition of marriage is an instance of discrimination. And I actually think there are more people like that than the media would give credit to. And so to give one example, the state of Colorado in 2004, if I remember correctly, or maybe it was vice versa, but in 04, they passed one law, in 06, they passed the other. And one was an anti-discrimination law. It was the law that was used against Jack Phillips, the baker. And the other law was the marriage amendment. And so within a span of 2 years the citizens of Colorado voted to say we're against unjust discrimination we don't think the man woman definition of marriage is discriminatory. And I actually do think at least in uh, contemporary America, you know not 30 years ago of America but like today's America, there are more kind of conservative Christians who want to hold both of those uh, opinions than the mainstream media wants to give them credit for. Right. There are people who say, look, I have no interest in I, and I would speak out. It's unjust. It's unfair if you're denied service just because you're gay. But I think there's something different if there's someone who has a, a, a belief about marriage, a belief that I happen to believe is true, right? I think this is the true belief about marriage. If they don't want to help celebrate your wedding, you know, whether it's with a cake or flowers or with the photography, uh, if they think children deserve a mother and a father, not every disagreement is discriminatory, right? And so so part of like where where we were talking earlier about freedom of speech and other kind of like how we can disagree without being disagreeable, there's also going to need a certain amount of space of like there are certain actions that are truly discriminatory and need to be prohibited. There are other disagreements that's just part of living in a pluralistic society and not every disagreement needs to be treated as if it's the next wave of Jim Crow or the next version of the KKK. And I think that analogy to racism, which which was used during um, the gay marriage debate, but it's also now being used in the transgender debate, right That if you're not in favor of various gender identity laws that you're the functional equivalent of the racist, I think it's a really, really bad analogy. It's kind of like the reductio ad Hitlerium, right where that you know, anytime I disagree with you, I'm going to compare you to Hitler, and it's those are conversation stoppers. Uh, they don't invite deeper reflection and deeper. Nuancing, And I think a lot of these things need to be, there are lots of distinctions that need to be drawn. There's lots of nuance um, Mm -hmm. that needs to be discovered. Well,
2: I've got a good case for you to think about. So when I was in my early 30s, I was in college and I was working part time and I had insurance coverage through my employer and the in-network doctor or the in-network network was a Catholic hospital and I sought for continuing hormone replacement therapy, which is now necessary for me because teenage me decided to do something that that is irreversible. And the Catholic hospital would not schedule me with their endocrinologist because it was against their ethics. However, it is medically necessary for me to have some form of exogenous hormone And i had to pay out of pocket and out of network to get that service so in that scenario what do you think the the law should do in order to address somebody in my position
1: yeah i mean i think that is possibly the most difficult question um because i mean the way that you described it is that you had already made the decision to transition and so you no longer had your kind of like natural hormone producing bodily organs but all right so 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 that said i mean i think that's more difficult than like the question of someone who wants to do this as like initiating a transition procedure but i also think simultaneously with that is that i think it would be unjust if the healthcare network said we're not offering you any hormone replacement therapy period versus we're going to offer you the hormone uh, replacement therapy that is biologically appropriate because right? like, you know the way you described it once you removed your hormone-producing organs, you need something. But whether it's estrogen or testosterone is something of an open question. And I think there's a reasonable debate, even in the case, we probably disagree about this, but I mean, I think even in the case of adults, there's an open question of what's in the best interest of people. And I come down, Catholic uh, hospitals and the ethical and religious directives, the ERDs that govern Catholic healthcare come down in the perspective that adults shouldn't try to live as if they're the opposite sex. And so the appropriate care for someone in that situation would have been hormone therapy that corresponds with their bodily uh, sex. Mm And so, look, I think that's a disagreement where we don't need to uh, have the government step in and say one side of that disagreement is going to use the force of law to compel the other side of the disagreement into living uh, in accordance with its beliefs. Um, And I missed or maybe you didn't say or maybe I just don't remember now, were you working at the time for a Catholic institution or was it, you were working for an institution whose healthcare was provided at a Catholic hospital?
2: It it was a small city. And so the main provider was a a Catholic hospital network. Catholic hospital.
1: Yeah. And again, I mean, I I do think that's a much tougher case than, you know, some of the the ones that we're confronted with. There are two cases that I know of more recently where someone went to a Catholic hospital for a hysterectomy or a mastectomy and they are like, that's not something we do for, people who want to transition. But I I do think in your case, because you'd already removed the various organs in question that you needed some hormone replacement therapy, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's unreasonable. And I don't think it's discriminatory for a Catholic hospital to say the type of hormone therapy that you needed was one that corresponded to your bodily reality. Mm. Uh, And I think we need to have space. In our country to say, look, we, we disagree about that, but we're not going to compel people to violate their medical consciences or their religious consciences. Um, and then again, that might just be one of those places where we disagree. Yeah.
2: Do you, do you, uh, you think uh, maybe if there had been something that said that if you won't supply the service in network for, for the insurance company, so this would be a regulation on the insurance company mm-hmm. that if that service is not available in network, that the out of network costs must be the same as the in network costs. I mean,
1: I could see something like that, I mean, provided the insurance company itself doesn't have any objection to this. So, so mm-hmm. it's purely a bookkeeping matter, right? So, I mean, it's one thing if it's a, I mean, let's say you were working at like Hobby Lobby at the time. And, you know, I actually don't know what Hobby Lobby, I know what they thought about the contraception mandate as it applied to abortion causing drugs, but I, I, I don't know what they think about hormone replacement therapy. But imagine it was a private business that did have an objection to it, but I don't think they should have to cover therapies that they disagree with in the same way that I don't think the hospital should have to perform them if they disagree with them. But let's just say it's Blue Cross Blue Shield and Blue Cross Blue Shield has like no moral, ethical, religious concern. It's purely an in-network, out-of-network. Then I'm much more open to saying, well, if your in-network hospital does have a religious objection to it, you need to accommodate the patient at an out-of-network facility that doesn't have the religious... Objection. Like I mean, it strikes me that that's a way in which um, it's a win-win outcome. I had co-authored a book um, titled "Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination," and it was me and Sharif Gergis on one side, and then John Corvino on the other side. And it was much more about the aftermath of gay marriage debates than it was. You know, it was published, and I think in 2016 or 2017. So it was before many of the um, transgender issues came to the fore. But the argument that Sharif and I put forward is that look, whenever we can find win-win outcomes on these conflicts between discrimination and religious liberty, it strikes us that a win-win outcome as a political, cultural matter is much preferable to a winner-takes-all outcome. The type of thing that I just described in which if Blue Cross Blue Shield doesn't have an objection to it, the in-network hospital is Catholic, they do have an objection, they could pay the same price at another a hospital. And that way it's, the Catholic hospital keeps its integrity intact You keep what you think is best for your healthcare intact and Blue Cross Blue Shield is probably paying the same bottom line at the end of the day, right? So anyway, that strikes me as a win-win, but, and we, and we should explore, we should be willing to kind of pursue those sorts of outcomes more often than not. If you were a minor, I might give you a different answer, I mean, I think it's an appropriate function of government to say that minors um, shouldn't be transitioning. Yeah. Know? And I think
2: I, I agree. I'm a, pro- I'm a programmer though. So the miners I think are, are, a, a, the they've got the black lung stuff, but the programmers, we have to transition.
0: Yeah. Most of you do. I was going to say that talking about healthcare, I mean, American healthcare is a disaster, I think. And we're just talking about one little aspect of the disaster that is American healthcare. So Fixing that problem will not make it less of a disaster.
2: Well, isn't it the case, though, Nina and and Ryan, that if we go to nationalized healthcare, that the providers, like at the Catholic hospitals, they won't even have a choice. It's going to be regulated centrally, and there will be one standard that every provider must follow.
1: I think something like that would be true, which is why I'm much more in favor of... Um kind of a a, a market-based approach. Because like we don't currently have a market-based approach. I have no idea what it really costs when I'm shopping around. I, I have psoriatic arthritis, so I see a rheumatologist. Very frequently, I'm on a... Re- there are no sticker prices. And I can't even call up doctors and ask, like, yeah. what is your regular quarterly fee for me to come in? What's your blood work fee? I have no idea what the difference between you know going to this lab, LabCorp versus the other lab. So we don't have a market-based, a true market-based system. But then I, I'm not with the libertarians on this where you would just say, leave it to the market. I think the functional equivalent of what we do with like vouchers in a school choice context, we should have healthcare vouchers. Um, there's no reason why people um, who are not particularly well-off financially shouldn't have access to affordable healthcare. The way that we do that is, to my mind, simultaneously, like market competition when it comes to the, to the delivery of healthcare with things like vouchers when it comes to the funding of healthcare. So you give someone who's poor, not government run healthcare, but a subsidy to go buy the same health insurance that, you know, we might buy if we have the luxury. And then also I would detach it from employment. I think it's really, this is just a relic of mid 20th century American politics in which we were trying to keep wages low. So we started doing all these additional benefits as part of your compensation that our health insurance got tied to our employment. Um, it makes many people feel trapped with their current employer uh, and unable to switch jobs, unable to have a period of unemployment because they would lose health care. And it would just be much better if all of us could shop around for our best health insurance and then people who were below a certain income level were given the functional equivalent of like vouchers to be able to then shop around for their best health insurance, which would also then allow you know me as a Catholic to seek out. A Catholic health insurance company, a Catholic doctor, a Catholic hospital, other people who don't share my values, the freedom to have a different type. I mean, it's actually this is this would allow for greater specificity when it comes to the pluralism of America than a single payer system and a sil- single delivery system. I actually think that the delivery of healthcare is much more crucial um, than the, you know how do we pay for it aspect, but both matter.
2: Ryan, if you don't mind me saying this, I sense within you. I recognize it because I see, I have it in myself too, but I see within you this desperation for someone else to hear what you're saying and actually understand your logic <laughs> and react to your logic. Is, is this, am, am I picking that up? Correctly? I am a
1: very um, like, I forget what which Myers-Briggs type study it is, but like, I am a very up here logic low on the emotion, low on the talking about feelings side of thing, but very much like rational argument type person, um, for better and worse. I mean, I think all of our strengths are also our corresponding weaknesses. Um, I'm a very much rational thought logic type of a guy, not a touchy feely emotion type guy, but
0: yeah. You talk about religion. Have you thought about, could we classify genderism as a religion? Like, I often think if we just called it what it is, a religion, then that would be better. Is that something you've thought about? It
1: it is funny you mention that. I spent an hour and a half earlier today talking with some people (laughs) precisely on that issue. Right now, I'm still mulling it over. But I think in many respects, it is like a religion, right? There are aspects of it that have like religious... Connotations. There, there's like a liturgical aspect to it. There's a dogmatic aspect to it. There's a communal aspect to it. Um, at the same time, I'm hesitant though because I actually religion to my mind is a good thing. And, and you know, I think sometimes when people want to say, "Oh, it's like a religion," it's because they want to like denigrate it or they want to um, you know make it seem like it's a superstition. Whereas you know, I think religion is ultimately about truths about God. And so, you know, and I don't think gender ideology is like that because i don't think it's true and i don't think it's particularly um, concerned with truths about god so i almost wonder if it's more like either a heresy or a cult but then i don't like using those (laughs) languages because i think those are conversation stoppers i mean i I think like that's if i'm trying to talk to someone who doesn't already agree with me and i was like oh yeah your belief system is a lot like a heresy or a cult you know (laughs) that's not inviting dialogue either but I do think that
0: That, that's how they, that's how they feel when I say that it's a religion and I don't mean it in a denigrating Mm. way, right? Like the, the faith that people have is real. It's profoundly important to them. Everything comes from that faith and it's like, well, I don't know what's going on inside of them. I just, I don't want to be proselytized at, and I want to have a separation of church and state. And I, I do want people to be able to be free to practice that. In fact, it's not that there are these groups of people that are doing this, because there are groups of people that do all sorts of things that I don't approve of, and that maybe I would hmm. indulge in judging. But if it's classified as a religion, I don't have to judge them then. Right. Or, you know, it's like optional for me to judge oh. them. Whereas right now, if they're in my face and forcing it down my throat, yeah, I'm going to judge a lot. Nope.
1: My thought there is, you, you mentioned that you believe in the separation of church and state. And I mean, I think um, no matter what, I mean, take the, the the gender identity sets of questions. There's a truth of the matter, right? And either people who believe in you know gender identity should be enshrined in the law, or people who believe biology should be enshrined in the law. Those are two mutually incompatible um, propositions, right? So when we say we're going to have separate sports teams for boy and girl, man and woman, separate prisons for boy and girl, man and woman. Either we're gonna do those based on the biology of male and female or the identity of you know boy and girl, man and woman. And both of those options have both secular versions and religious versions, right? I mean, it, it strikes me that there are secular justifications and religious justifications for both the gender identity part and the biological sex part. And what really matters at the end of the day is which one is true. Um, And that, you know, lots of our true beliefs, you could think about, you know, homicide laws, property laws. They're both secular and religious justifications for them, right? So you can give like a Kantian, you know, second categorical imperative argument for why we um, shouldn't kill people. You can also give, you know, the imago dei and the golden rule style argument
0: what are the secular justifications for genderism yeah i
1: mean i think they would this would be the um oh what is the doctor's name he used to be at harvard now he's uh on the west coast um they always cite him um do you know who i'm thinking of um uh, jack turban jack turban yes
2: He, he was at stanford
1: i don't think jack's particularly religious right i mean i think he believes this is the science right i mean i think he's
0: no but what I'm saying is that it's it's not the okay. science right so like the, there is how can I say like we can say that there's when when you say secular in terms of genderism when you say that there are secular justifications for it those are religious gotcha. justifications but I mean, we just we just don't call them religious in the case of genderism because it's not acknowledged as a religion right. you know, there is no there is no scientific evidence of the gendered soul right. uh it's fine though but i mean i i think people need religion mm-hmm. right i really am not trying to denigrate it by calling it a religion people they they crave it and i think that's one of the reasons it's so ascendant yep. is that traditional religions are out of yes. favor but people still have the needs so the need, for community, uh, the need
1: for truth claims the need for i mean like i mean they're,
0: they're and the, the need for, for claims that are things that, you know, don't have materialist Foundation. basis, uh, right? Like the need for something more, for, for yep. meaning, for like some but kind of bigger you, you meaning. You have to also
2: factor in that this gender ideology is starting to penetrate into a lot of churches. I was messaging with somebody today who said mm-hmm. that at their church that they're doing the, the gender, the genderbred man, and that they're teaching gender ideology... In the church itself, yeah,
1: I think that's exactly right. That you know, not all, not all religious, traditional religious communities are all that traditional. But I took, I took Nina's claim to be one of that. It's not just that certain like historic religious communities have bought into gender ideology, but that gender ideology itself should be classified as a religion uh, in the same way that like Catholicism or Judaism or Islam. Is a religion.
0: Yeah. So the people would be free. They'd be free to practice it.
1: Like the way that you're going to classify gender ideology as a religion, why isn't human rights? Because they're intangible, right? There's no empirical scientific defense of human rights. So why isn't the UN Declaration of Human Rights a religious document?
0: And maybe it is, right? I mean, yeah, I think there's actually. I mean, I, I recently read uh, The Righteous Mind oh, sure. yeah. by Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. So uh there's a lot more morality and moral reasoning going on than people admit. Right. I mean, I have like my own little religious behaviors because I I acknowledge that I I need something mm. and and yet I there's a real barrier for me to have like a consistent belief in God, Mm -hmm. but I still benefit from some kinds of religious thinking. So I'm an artist and my art practice, I can frame it in a spiritual way. And, but would I want to say art is a religion? I mean, I suppose it could, it could reach a degree. It could become... (laughs) popular enough I mean I think one aspect of a religion is it's not something that is done in isolation it is done in community so uh it does have an element uh, this classification that I'm suggesting has an element of size also I say Mm -hmm. that a religion is a cult with an army Mm -hmm. just like a language is a dialect with an army there's lots of things that are cults and call all kinds of things cults but if it gets big enough and powerful enough it becomes a religion right yeah. And I would say gen- genderism is at that point <laughs> where it has it has a extraordinary amount of institutional power. Very and much so. it's time. Yeah. It's an interesting
2: question. I, I want to think more about it. I'm I'm being sensitive to your time, Ryan. We've had you for an hour, but how are you on time? So, because we haven't even talked about Amazon yet. <laughs> no, we haven't. That's
0: <laughs> Has is your book still banned on Amazon? I went looking for it on Amazon and it didn't come up.
1: It that that is That is the answer to your question. The reason it did not come up is it's still like, I mean, as far as we can tell, they haven't banned all that many books, but mine is, you know, one of the ones that, you know, they sold it for three years and then, um, the Sunday afternoon before, uh, Nancy Pelosi was bringing the equality act for a vote on the house floor, Amazon determined that it violated their content policy. And, you know, none of the words in the book had changed during those three years. Um I don't know if you guys have read the book, but, I have. You know, would you agree with this statement? like I don't think there's any incendiary rhetoric. I mean, people can agree with it or disagree with it, but like you know, I was very intentional to not use rhetoric that would be offensive, but you know, I argue for propositions that people might disagree with, um but it's not a bomb throwing book
2: your your book, though conservative, is extremely even tempered You do your very Thank best you. to try to present enough context so that if somebody disagreed with you, they would at least be able to see what you're looking at to form their own opinion. Yeah. And and, I mean, one, thank you. But two, like that, that was what I
1: had been going for. Like, I mean, there's a certain type of conservative and I don't, I mean, I think there's a role for this, but like, you know, they want to get canceled by Amazon or they want to, you know, go to a college campus and, you know, get kicked off campus. That's not my vocation, right? I mean, and, and again, it's not necessarily to criticize them. I think there's a place for that type of individual it's not the type of book I write it's not the type of talk I give and so I was really frustrated when it happened because like it wasn't like oh great I got canceled by Amazon now I can like go on Fox News and sell more books at Barnes and Noble it was to my mind a clear attempt by Amazon especially given the timing of when this took place to discredit me right to to make it seem like me as an individual the book as a written product were, you know, hate speech, mm. were bigoted, were discriminatory blah 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 blah. I don't think they succeeded, but I do think it had a chilling effect. Yeah. I think there were people who are fearful of, you know, running afoul of the Amazon censors.
2: Yeah. Um, you understand it's not about you, right?
1: Right. It's about the it's, a, it's about the the bottom line. It's not personal. I get, not I get personal. that very much.
2: Yeah. yeah. You just happen to be there to have an example made of you. And, you know, and the same thing happened to Abigail Schreier's
1: book at Target, yes. if I remember correctly. It, was, it Yeah, it was Target that wouldn't sell it. And I forget which outlet wouldn't run ads for it, if it was like Facebook or Twitter or Amazon. But I mean, it's, it's remarkable to me how much public opinion agrees with us on many of these issues, despite the fact that like some of the strongest forces in our economics and our politics are very much um, aligned against us
2: did you happen to see the leaked video of the amazon employees who were having a very difficult time coping with matt walsh's books that were on amazon's platform i I did
1: not click the videos but i saw that episode but i try to avoid as much kind of like outrage porn as i can just because i kind of feel like i see enough of it naturally that if i don't need to watch things like that i won't but i mean i think that goes back to you know where we started of like you know, you, you would ask the, actually, I forget who had asked the question of, you know, which side is more intolerant of the other side or more unwilling to hear out the other side. Um, and it just strikes me again, at, at at least the elite levels of society. If you're a conservative, you can't go through elite institutions without being tolerant of the other side. Because like all of your professors, all of your bosses, the majority of your classmates are much more on the left side of of, of, of the spectrum. Whereas, you know, I think a lot of left-leaning people can, you know, at the elite level, go through much of their professional adult lives without ever really encountering, you know, a conservative individual or a conservative viewpoint that's articulate. And then they don't know what to do when they do encounter it. I mean, I, I think that's also a huge problem. of You've almost been shielded from the opposing viewpoint for so long in your life that when you do encounter it, you, you don't have the wherewithal to you know, go toe to toe in the back and forth, the exchange of ideas. Whereas my experience is, you know, I've spent my entire adult life doing that back and forth of ideas, because I had no other choice, right? There wasn't uh, any other option for someone with my beliefs.
0: This is the opposite of how liberals were characterized, liberals and conservatives were characterized 10 or 20 years ago, um, actually, I really want to ask Jonathan Haidt about that if we ever get him as a guest, because, uh, he, he wrote about testing liberals and conservatives and their responses and like conservatives were more fearful, you know, of, of different things. And I'm like, it doesn't sound like that now. It would be, that's how I would characterize liberals. Now. It's like, there was this flip.
1: Two thoughts in response. To that: One, it would be awesome if you got him as a guest. Like I think that would be a great conversation. But then two, it would be really fascinating because I remember I read The Righteous Mind right when it came out, which now is probably almost a decade ago. Was that a 2012, 2013 book? It would be fascinating to know if he ran some of those same you know, surveys and studies again, what the updated numbers would be. One other thing I remember from that book, he used the analogy of taste buds that you know we have moral uh, frameworks or vocabularies and he said that conservatives used all, I think remember if it was like six or seven of them. Liberals only used so many. And then like libertarians, you know, only use, you know, and, and, and like one was like a harm, one was like an honor, one was a, it, it's been so long. But you, you know what I'm getting at? And yes. And I think that's also part of it is that if one side of a debate is appealing to six considerations, the other side's only appealing to three or four, that means two of those, ways of thinking are just falling on deaf ears because you don't have the conceptual framework. You don't have the taste buds, right? So if you eat a certain food and you lack that taste bud, you're just not picking up on it. You can't receive it. You can't, um, you know, digest it in, in, in that sense. And I imagine that's also playing out.
0: Yeah. Well, there's been a lot of role reversals. When I think about like a real uptight church lady, I think of liberals now.
1: The account libs of TikTok. Uh, has shown kind of a lot of a progressive uptight, uptight church ladies almost. Um,
0: Yes. And proselytizing evangelical. Right. Behavior,
1: which, which also raises the question of, you know, maybe it's part of human nature that like, there's no escaping that. And so the question isn't going to be so much of, are we going to have that type of behavior, but is it going to be reflective of, you know, true underlying, ontological, metaphysical, moral beliefs.
0: Well, that's why I want classification as a religion, because that we are going to have that kind of behavior. I just want to not be compelled to participate in it. Or I want I want my compulsion to participate in it to be minimized. Right. right. Re- the nice thing about religious freedom is that it means you're free to not practice religions also.
1: And that's very much the kind of like old school liberal. You know, we talked about maybe maybe an hour. I'm
0: conservative. I'm conservative of old school liberalism. (laughs) And, you know, liberals are pretty conservative, or not liberal, conservatives are pretty liberal. That's what I wanted to say. And and when I think about actual liberal values, the value of freedom and liberty, conservatives have that. It's really a kind of American uh, idealism.
1: And that's one of the fault lines of like some of the contemporary intramural center right debates is, is conservatism just American liberalism or is it something else? And, you know, what's the right mix of liberty and order or liberty and law and where you kind of titrate that, like, you know, where do you put that dividing line has been the subject. At least for the past five years, but goes all the way back to the Reagan coalition of how much of this is the libertarian side, how much of this is the traditionalist side, and I don't see those debates, yeah. you know, ending. It's just going to be a question of coming down on the right area because you know very few people want to be like the absolute, you know, anarcho-capitalist libertarian Murray Rothbard style. M- maybe you do, <laughs> um, uh, and then I think very few people want to be like the pure authoritarian spectrum, right? So if, if those are the true poles, you know, where do you come down? Some people might be the 50-yard line, some people might be this 25-yard line, some people might be that 25-yard line. And, you know, it strikes me that a lot of the debates take place of between those two poles, where along the spectrum is the sweet spot?
0: Yeah, well, I know there's a line that's become pretty clear to me, which is pedophilia. It's like there's, I have all these libertarian ideals and then it's like nope not oh, for pedophilia i, w- like, I was wondering where taboos, you were going that you- bring out <laughs> bring out the social condemnation i'm like bring out the discrimination and even though i do believe that pedophilia may well not be any kind of choice it may be as involuntary as any sexual orientation i wouldn't call it a sexual orientation because it's harmful but uh you know a a pedophile or pedophilically inclined person really may not want to be that way and yet i'm like still okay with shaming them
2: so i voted for (laughs) gary johnson nina and i can tell you that pedophilia (laughs) was not part of the platform
1: great (laughs) although i mean it, it is there are academics talking about intergenerational love. That's their politically correct term. That's our euphemism That's for pedophilia. Intergenerational love. And, you know, somewhere on my bookshelf, I have a book titled like it's something like In Defense of Intergenerational Love. And it's published by a um an academic philosopher. Or maybe it's titled Adult Child. I, I need a I- I'm trying to see if I can actually like physically see it from here. But you know, there are what you just articulated I mean, a- was there are certain liberties, all of our liberties have limits. And what is the limit on our sexual liberties? Consent is one that I think most people agree with. And, you know, you articulated that there should be a limit when it comes to generational, generate you know, general contact, right? That you need to be of the same generation, or at least not of an a minor uh, age limit, right? So maybe like...
0: Yeah, I I like the just you know minor age because you know if somebody forty wants to date somebody who's sixty, yeah, that's That's intergenerational. That's okay with yeah, me.
1: Yeah, no, and, and that that's fair. I mean, like that's not what I meant by intergenerational. Yeah, so that that's a good clarification. <laughs> um, minor generations with anyone of older generation, but I mean that just to my mind also highlights that many of the political bromides on both the right and the left oversimplify things. Right, so if you say, "Look, I'm in favor of liberty," and you're like, "All right, really?" So you're in favor of the liberty of the pedophile, and like, well, no, no, not right. So we need to talk about the limits to our liberty, and, and you know, even with religious liberty, I'm, I'm in favor of religious liberty, but I don't think it um, would protect the Aztec who wants to engage in human sacrifice, and you know, that's an obvious example. And then the question is, like, right, well, where do you draw the line on, um, you know, the the insurance company that won't pay for hormone replacement therapy? you know, in the situation that we discussed half an hour ago, right? I mean, and those are more difficult because that's more of like, that's, you know, a 50 yard line type question. What side of the line should it fall on? And I think those sorts of nuanced line drawing questions, American political culture is like at the worst it's ever been for having those conversations. Because we talk about, you know, we we, we talk in the the bromides, we don't talk about the um, nitty gritty fine tuning.
0: Well, you're just saying that because you're a bigot.
1: (laughs) That is the typical college campus response. So now I feel very much at home. Maybe with that, <laughs> on that note, we, we should end. As I look at the yeah. clock, like, oh no.
2: <laughs> well, if anybody wants to read When Harry Became Sally, they can find it, for, for certain, they can find it on the Apple bookstore, but maybe they can find it at Barnes & Noble as well. They can't find it on Amazon.
1: Those are the two places that I know of like you know major international chains that do sell the book, both Barnes and Noble and Apple carries it.
2: If one of our listeners is converted to your way of thinking and they want to consume even more Ryan Anderson books afterwards, do you have anything new?
1: <laughs> You're setting me up for, so all of my other books are available at Amazon, um, including a book that'll come out next month. Uh, titled "Tearing Us Apart," uh, how abortion uh, let me let me get the subtitle right. How abortion sol- uh, harms everything and solves nothing. I was tripping on the order there, um, and I imagine it would be you know something that our listeners uh, might have different perspectives on. Um, but it's it's co-authored with Alexander De Sanctis, who's a, a visiting fellow at the Ethics of a Public Policy Center and then a staff writer for National Review. Uh, And to my mind is probably one of the smartest, most articulate kind of pro-life thinkers, writers, speakers of her generation. She's still in her 20s. And it's more or less meant to, from our perspective, document all of the ways that the past 50 years um, since Roe v. Wade has caused harm um, to our culture, to, to children, to women, to medicine, to et cetera, et cetera. And it really hasn't solved any of the problems that it was promised to solve. Um, and so again, it might be the type of thing that, you know, we'll agree to disagree on, but it's it's our attempt at a civil, rational, thoughtful, you know, presentation of the argument, right? And so for people who want to know, like, what is the pro-life argument in a, you know, post Dobbs world, hmm. um, the book will be available next month.
2: Well, I guess you're a little bit unlucky with your timing though, because you're publishing it in an age where subtle opinions and thoughtfulness are not really appreciated by the Book buyers?
1: Unfortunately, not. But I mean, like, for better or worse, that's my vocation. Like, it's the type of thing of, you know, this is, you know, I'm firmly convinced that, like, this is what God wants me doing with my life is kind of, you know, working on difficult questions. I'd written a book on the gay marriage debate, on religious liberty debates, on gender identity debates, now on the abortion debate. And, you know, just thinking about it as carefully as I can and then presenting my arguments as both clearly and Charitably, you know, i don't write the bomb throwing style book and the bomb s- selling the bomb throwing style book sells a lot better but that's not my vocation so
2: ryan thank you so much for sharing your time with us tonight yeah thank you
1: it was a pleasure yeah read. thank you nice meeting you both and um yeah
0: yeah i hope we can talk again that'd be fun uh thank you yeah. thank you turfs and trannies for All listening
2: right. bye everybody Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support our podcast by visiting anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by directly supporting Nina Paley on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nina Paley.